I'm Melissa Haverl. Welcome to the third episode of Recoding Relations, a podcast series on Indigenous new media and the politics and potentials of the digital humanities. Created by Autumn Schnell and me, this series captures some of the main themes and conversations of the 2018 Symposium for Indigenous New Media, which was held as part of this year's Digital Humanities Summer Institute at the University of Victoria on the unceded territories of the Wasainich, Lekwungen, and Esquimalt peoples. As members of CITR Radio's Indigenous Collective, who produce the show Unceded Airwaves, Autumn and I traveled to Victoria in June to attend and record the conference. We listened to scholars from over 20 institutions and three continents present research on diverse topics from Indigenous video games and virtual reality, to communications technology, digitizing archives, social media analytics, and language revitalization. The symposium was a gathering place for folks studying and working in Indigenous studies, new media, and the digital humanities to come together, share research, and discuss critical issues facing their fields. Autumn and I are excited to share some of those conversations with you here and to hold up the community building and digital innovation we saw at the conference. And we hope the series inspires more learning, dialogue, and relationships across the digital humanities and Indigenous studies. I'm Trina Chambers. I am a Métis person. I grew up on the lands and the waterways of the Sinix Nation. I grew up in a community that largely ignored the history of the people of the land and erased them. I hope that in my time here and in my academic work, I can push against other acts of erasure that occur and that can occur both consciously and unconsciously. There was talk yesterday about how indigenous digital humanities is political. And for me, the digital humanities period are political. Too often we see the politics of the powerful centered as the norm and not as political. And we need to remember when we're doing this that that is political as well. That was Trina Chambers. She presented at the symposium on her involvement with the Kojawea project. In today's show, we'll be discussing how people studying and working in Indigenous Studies and the Digital Humanities, aka DH, understand and define digital technology, and we'll talk about some of the politics involved in working in these fields. You'll hear presentations from Ashley Caranto Morford and Jeffrey Anslews, two scholars who challenge normative and often colonial ways of understanding the digital, and who push us to think more critically about DH projects in relation to decolonization and Indigenous sovereignty. I think the point that Trina Chambers makes is important that the politics of the powerful are often assumed to be the norm, and that the erasure of Indigenous peoples, conscious or not, is constant. That's clear in settler colonial societies like Canada, but it's unfortunately also true of academic disciplines like the digital humanities. As I learned at the symposium, DH has so far really failed to recognize or adequately make space for the lived experiences of Indigenous peoples, as well as Black, people of colour, queer, and gender non-binary folks working in the field. The ways that we define and understand digital technology itself is also often determined according to Eurocentric values, histories, and perspectives within and beyond the DH community. SINM was actually organized as a response to these problems, and in the grant proposal for the symposium, conference organizer David Gertner wrote that there is an urgent need to decolonize DH theory and practice. He quotes Sarah McPherson, who asks, why are the digital humanities so white, but says, 
We also need to ask, how does DH replicate settler colonialism? And how do we, as researchers and teachers, address that? I think David again put it well in his keynote. The tech is only useful insofar as it holds up people. Because what we really need in Indigenous studies right now um, is not more tools or more platforms, um, but a critical mass of Indigenous and allied voices that can push back against the encroaching silence of settler colonialism, that can hold up Indigenous voices, and that can help to challenge and change colonial ideology and infrastructure. The silence of settler colonialism and the politics of the powerful as they relate to DH and digital technology, are some of what I hope to get into in this episode. And there's no better way to start than with Ashley Caranto Morford, a scholar who disrupts the very idea of what digital means. Ashley is a PhD student in English and book history at the University of Toronto, and her work intersects Indigenous studies, anti-colonialism, sexuality studies, and the digital humanities. You'll hear from me again midway through the tape for a bit of context and details. Here's Ashley. Kamusta, hello. I'm so incredibly privileged and grateful to be part of this symposium as a visitor on the territories of the Lekwungen and Sanish nations, and I extend my deepest and sincerest thanks. Salamat. In Why Indigenous Literatures Matter, Cherokee writer Daniel Heath Justice reminds us that stories can be good medicine, as BIPOC stories and stories by people from other marginalized identities often are, or stories can be bad medicine, as colonialist stories often are. I would suggest that the ways in which the mainstream academy teaches and defines stories is often bad medicine too. Again, in Why Indigenous Literatures Matter, Justice writes, quote, the term literature is so common that we often forget about how it is deeply embedded in a vexed history of racism, classism, and arbitrary power. For instance, colonial definitions, which define literature as alphabetic text, fail to recognize all of the ways that stories are told, transmitted, shared, put down. Indigenous studies honors and celebrates literature in ways that are not confined to colonial and Euro-Western definitions, such as by recognizing to draw on Justice's teachings once more, that literatures include, quote, cane baskets, wampum belts, birch bark scrolls, gourd masks, sand paintings, rock art, carved and painted cedar poles, stones and whale bones, culturally modified trees, and so on. And what about the ways in which the Western institution recognizes and defines digital technology, or more broadly, the digital? I believe that we need to interrogate, challenge, and disrupt the common definitions attached to these terms as well. Within the university setting, these terms are commonly used to refer to computers and computer technology. Such a narrow understanding of the digital fails to take into account decolonial understandings of the digital and pre- and decolonial digital technologies. Cherokee scholar Angela Haas calls on us to reimagine the digital when she argues in her article, Wampum as Hypertext, that wampum is a digital technology, which relies on the intricate work of one's fingers, or digits, to create complex codes. I was given the opportunity to participate in a digital storytelling class at the DH at Guelph 2018 summer workshop, wherein we were assigned the task of creating a three to four minute digital story. I used this class to begin to work through some of the ideas I've just posed, 
and I did so through introducing the story of ongoing pre-colonial, pre-Philippine tattooing practices. So I'm going to share that digital story with you now. At this point, Ashley played her digital story for the folks at SINM, which I'll share again with you now. Maayang Pagabot, Siaksi Ashley, and I love tattoos. I currently have seven. I am British on my father's side, and on my mother's side, I am a member of the Visayan and Lusanese diasporas, of those territories currently known as the Philippines. There are over 7,000 islands that make up these territories, and more than 130 ethnic groups, including distinct indigenous peoples. The history of the islands includes the violence of colonization. The name of the Philippines came from Spanish colonizers and stands for King Philippe II of Spain. The Spanish colonial period of the Philippines lasted over 300 years, from the 1500s to 1898. Shortly after, the Philippines was colonized by the US and the American colonial period lasted from 1898 to 1946. The negative effects of the colonial periods are still ongoing but Filipinos have always revolted against colonialism and will continue to do so. I've never lived on or with my ancestral homelands and have spent my life in the privileged position of a settler on and with the stolen indigenous territories of Turtle Island. The process of getting tattooed and of celebrating tattoos is one way that I connect with my Philippine ancestors, relations, and homelands. Tattooing practices are an ancient and important part of many of our traditional knowledges and cultures. In the pre-colonial period, tattoos, distinct between ethnic groups, signified our spiritualities, our mythologies and oral histories, our beauty, one's kin, one's status, or one's achievements. They often had to be earned and were often inked in ceremony. When Spanish colonizers arrived, they labeled the Visayan inhabitants they came in contact with pintados, due to the intricate and plentiful tattoos that many Visayans bore. Colonization sought to destroy the rich tattooing practices of the islands. For example, colonialists put tattooed Filipinos on display in Europe as a means of objectification and dehumanization, such as Prince Giolo. Yet our traditional tattooing practices continue today in grassroots spaces. Perhaps the most notable, most respected Mamba Batok is Fangod, a woman and elder of the indigenous Kalinga people, who continues to practice her ancestral tattooing methods at age 101, and who has passed her knowledge on to her younger relations so that these traditions continue. One day, when and if I have earned the right, I hope to be traditionally tattooed by Mayo Landicho. Cherokee scholar Angela Haas argues that the rich technologies of Turtle Island's indigenous nations, like wampum, can be seen as digital technologies that employ the fingers or digits to create complex codes. I believe that pre-colonial and indigenous Philippine tattooing practices are also forms of decolonial digital technology. These practices rely on the fingers or digits to code significant aspects of our cultures, 
through the intimate hand-tapping technique that requires a bamboo stick and lemon tree thorn, water and soot. This digital technology continues to this day to connect us to and with our homelands and cultures, and the survival of this ancient wisdom helps to dismantle the ongoing legacies of colonialism. That was the digital story Ashley showed at the symposium. Before we go on, though, some of you might be wondering what a wampum is and how it relates to the argument here about digital technology. In the article that Ashley cites, Wampum as Hypertext, author Angela Haas explains that wampum is a small, short, tubular bead made from the quahog clamshell. For over a thousand years, wampum and other material components have been used by woodlands indigenous peoples for ceremony and as records of important civil affairs like alliances, treaties, marriage proposals, ceremonies, and war by stringing the wampum beads together on individual strands or weaving them into belts. Wampum serves as sign technology, writes Haas, and has been used to record hundreds of years of alliances within tribes, between tribes, and between tribal and colonial governments. In the essay, Haas argues that wampum functions as hypertext, and she positions Indigenous peoples as the first skilled multimedia workers and intellectuals in the Americas. She explains, both Western and wampum hypertexts employ digital rhetoric to communicate their nonlinear information. Digital refers to our fingers, our digits, one of the primary ways through which we make sense of the world and with which we write into the world. She says that all writing is digital and points to the word digitalis in Latin, which typically denotes of or relating to the fingers or toes. Given this, she argues, we should be reminded of writing known to us through history that was executed with the use of fingers and codes. From the Mesopotamian cuneiform, to the Egyptian and Mayan hieroglyphs, to the Chinese logograms, to Aztec codices, wampum belts, and Western hypertexts. Haas argues that wampum belts extend human memories of inherited knowledges through interconnected, nonlinear designs and associative storage and retrieval methods. And in this way, they've worked as hypertexts for millennia, long before the development of Western hypertext in the 20th century. Haas shows that particular indigenous communities in what we currently call North America have used wampum belts as digital technology for thousands of years, and she describes her essay as a counterstory to Western claims to the origins of hypertext and multimedia. And that's exactly what the article does so well. It challenges Western definitions of what hypertext and digital technology even are, and it shows that our understandings of the digital are shaped by particular political realities and systems of power. Ashley builds out of Haas's scholarship by continuing to disrupt these definitions in her own way. Her work pushes us to expand our conceptions of digital technology and to imagine how different indigenous or non-Western cultural practices were and are digital innovations in their own right. Here's Ashley again describing the project. My hope is that it sparks a decolonial rethinking of what constitutes digital technology that it calls on viewers to reconsider and reject narrow academic definitions of what the digital is. A gap that I've come to see in this video is it's not explicitly acknowledging that traditional Filipino tattoos are digital stories. In future iterations of this work, I strive to clearly develop and argue that traditional Philippine tattoos are complex codes that are not only created through digital technology, but as such are digital stories themselves. 
This symposium offers a wonderful and necessary opportunity to reflect on and discuss the digital in a community dedicated to challenging colonialism and settler colonialism and celebrating decolonialism. As such, I want to take some time to acknowledge and bring forward some key issues that I've come to recognize in the process of working on this assignment and that I must continue to reflect on and unpack in respectful and responsible ways. Indigenous studies and the brilliant people working within it have greatly helped to guide me and encourage me in my connecting to my Philippine communities. I feel that Philippine studies and certain discussions occurring within Philippine studies spaces also have valuable insights to contribute to the important Indigenous studies work that is occurring in Turtle Island and other settler colonial spaces. And here, I strive not to collapse complex identities, distinctions, and nuances between race and indigeneity, colonialism and settler colonialism, for instance, and to respect and be accountable towards the ways in which the diverse and complex identities and experiences discussed in these fields necessarily diverge. The Roundtable on BIPOC Solidarities at the Indigenous Literary Studies Association 2018 gathering in Treaty 4 and Métis territory raised a very important discussion about the relationships between alliance and accountability within BIPOC communities. What brings the various communities within the larger BIPOC community together? What holds us apart? How can an identity move between settler and indigeneity respectfully and responsibly? Many members of the Filipino-Canadian and Filipino-American communities are thinking through and striving to honor what it means to be a good relation here within Turtle Island. In the anthology, Diasporic Intimacies, Queer Filipinos and Canadian Imaginaries, Filipino-Canadian scholars place their writings in conversation with the writings of indigenous scholars from Turtle Island to reflect not only on decolonial futures, but also and interconnectedly on their responsibilities as settlers on Turtle Island. As we fight to dismantle the oppressions of colonial legacies, those of us who are diasporic Filipinos living as uninvited occupants in settler colonial spaces must not forget nor erase our position as settlers, and we must responsibly recognize the ways in which Asian settlement has perpetuated settler colonialism and settler colonial violence in and to Turtle Island. Japanese Filipino diasporic scholar Dean Itsuji Serenilio discusses these issues and complexities in his writings, including the article, Why Asian Settler Colonialism Matters, a thought piece on critiques, debates, and indigenous difference. Further, in my, at this point, quite short time engaging with decolonial Philippine movements and scholarship, I've noticed that the word indigenous is sometimes used in the lower case as an adjective to describe the revitalization of ongoing pre-colonial or pre-Philippine traditions, cultures, practices, laws, and languages from all over what is currently known as the Philippine Islands. While these revitalization movements are exciting and to be celebrated and supported, as we work to be good relations, I would ask us to responsibly reflect on and to reconsider using the word indigenous in this way. In the digital story assignment, I used indigenous as a proper noun to refer explicitly to the various sovereign indigenous nations in the Philippines. And I worry that the use of indigenous as a lowercase adjective risks failing to recognize the island's various sovereign indigenous nations who make up approximately 10% of the island's population, and whose lived experiences, 
including their ongoing fight to have the rights to self-governance fully honored and their ongoing fight against settler colonial encroachment on their lands by the Philippine government are vastly different from the mainstream lowland and Christianized Philippine populations. As Daniel Heath Justice writes in Why Indigenous Literatures Matter, indigenous must be honored as a proper noun and a political status. He writes, quote, the proper noun affirms significance. Reducing it to an adjective is political diminishment. And he writes, quote, the capital I in indigenous is important as it affirms the distinctive political status of peoplehood. And as I reflect on these questions, this also raises the fact that questions of indigenous and indigeneity are complex in the Philippines, especially when imagining decolonial futures. So I close with questions that the indigenous studies community has importantly been asking and reflecting on continuously. How do we act responsibly and respectfully towards our ancestors? In our digital story class at DH at Guelph, we received a brief tutorial on the public domain, copyright, and Creative Commons licensing, since in our assignments, we were required to use images that were in the public domain and or were permissible to use through Creative Commons licensing. But Creative Commons licensing and copyright and the public domain are not necessarily ethical and often are a means of benefiting and protecting the colonialist and the colonial system. The images that I found regarding traditional Philippine tattooing and that I was allowed to use under copyright rules and Creative Commons licensing were often photos taken in the early 1900s by white researchers, such as Dean C. Worcester, an American zoologist who took archived and controlled photographs of Filipinos as a means of asserting that we were too savage to govern ourselves. Did the ancestors whose photos were taken by white researchers with malicious colonial intents and whose photos are now in the public domain consent to have their image taken and used in such a way? Would they approve of how my story uses their imagery? In a panel at the Indigenous Literary Studies Association 2018 gathering, UBC graduate student and Métis scholar Maddie Redden posed a powerful and important question that I will paraphrase now to end this presentation. How do we return sovereignty to the rights of ancestors? Salamat. Thank you. Thank you to Ashley for those words. I appreciate hearing about the ethical and political concerns she worked through with her project, like the way she connects capitalizing Indigenous with the responsibility to recognize political distinctiveness and sovereignty, or how she questions her own use of photos that were legally sourced from the public domain and licensed as Creative Commons, but that historically were likely taken and used without the consent of her ancestors. These sorts of considerations and the politics and ethics Ashley centers in her work offer important lessons to fellow settlers in the academy on how to be better relations to Indigenous peoples and territories. Ashley also wanted me to mention that in the digital story, she says that Philippine hand-tapping techniques require a bamboo stick and lemon tree thorn, water, and soot, but that she's learned since creating the digital story and feels it's important to recognize that there are a diversity of different tools and materials that are used in traditional Philippine tattooing practices, and the particular materials will vary from community to community. She recommends Lane Wilkins' extensive and incredibly valuable and rich work on Philippine tattoos for anyone interested in learning more, and in particular his book, Filipino Tattoos, Ancient to Modern. 
Ashley also said that she didn't mention the issue of appropriation in the digital story, but that appropriation of traditional Philippine tattoo designs is an issue and something that must be carefully considered and discussed. She says it's not only a problem of non-Philippine people getting tattoos that appropriate traditional Philippine tattooing designs, but that the issue also includes Filipinos getting tattoo designs that belong to Philippine peoples and communities that they are not a part of. In this next segment, you'll hear from Jeffrey Anslews, an assistant professor in the Department of Applied Psychology and Human Development at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education at the University of Toronto. Jeffrey's research focuses on Indigenous mental health. He presented at SINM on his current research with Twitter, where he uses social media analytics as a way to explore social and political dimensions of Indigenous youth health as they're expressed online. For those who aren't familiar, social media analytics is basically the practice of gathering data from social media websites and analyzing that data using different tools like sentiment, content, or network analysis. It's traditionally used to inform business practices, but it's increasingly being applied in other research too. Similar to Ashley, Jeffrey pushes boundaries in how he imagines digital spaces, and his work is also clearly rooted in a political dedication to decolonization and upholding Indigenous sovereignty. Here's Jeffrey at SINM 2018. The title of my talk is honestly, I couldn't think of a title that worked. Um, I feel like an unusual participant in this space. I'm not a humanities professor. I, I found my way into the oppressive world of the social sciences um, and became a psychologist of all things, a community psychologist um, as an indigenous person, uh, which is confusing as well. Um, I think I'm a misfit as an academic. I didn't think I'd graduate from high school. Um, so being here is always sort of a surprising thing to me. I come from Winnipeg, where I grew up. My family comes from Fisher River Cree Nation in northern uh, Interlake region of Manitoba. The Stevensons, if you're from there. Um, I'm a Cree language, I guess I would say I'm like a strategic Cree language learner. I, I look up words that I find interesting, which I'm going to talk about in a little bit, but I, I use them for purposed reasons. I'm concerned with a number of the critical issues facing Indigenous youth across Canada, specifically high rates of suicide among our people, um, looking at issues of violence as they've come to intersect with the criminal justice system, among many other delightful and painful questions. What has led me to this space is that, like the river I grew up on, this is the Red River, and the Red River floods every year, and it doesn't like boundaries. It uh, reminds us annually that it doesn't like where we've built our our bridges or our roads or our houses um, and, and pushes us. And we try to stop those encroachments on space constantly. We try to um, define its river flowing and moving, but um, the Red River is always more powerful and always reminds us of our location um, in uh, its space. And also for me, this river is a, is, a, is a reminder of what's happening in Canada at the moment. This is uh, about a kilometer from where um, Tina Fontaine uh, was found in Winnipeg along the banks of the Red River. Um, and I think the Red River teaches us a lot about grief. It teaches us a lot about resistance and endurance. Um, and I think for me, why I find myself in this conversation today is because the paradigms and practices of the discipline for which I teach in no longer work. And the um, communities that I am committed to and the political ends which I'm committed to um, have demanded explorations beyond borders, 
of discipline have pushed me um, to messy reconfigurations of what it is I do. Um, so I hope that my words can reflect some of that today. For me, this research and the research explorations and, and, and learning that I'm doing in new media and in digital humanities and in critical media and, and technology studies are a product of a polity. They are a uh, response to an ethical commitment to decolonization and indigenous sovereignty. Um, and so it's from that place that I want to begin. I want to do a couple things today. One, it, it, just briefly theorizing the space that I work in on the internet, and particularly uh, on or with or within or by or for or underneath Twitter, and to share a little bit of the current projects of some of some of my research and really the research that's only focused on social media contexts, uh, and just briefly highlight some of the key tensions and challenges in these spaces. So this is a Cree word that I've strategically learned. So akwe tawa pikwak. This word, uh, it kind of means something like they sit on or sit on in layers on top of one another. I think for me, when I think about digital ecologies, when I think about spatial configurations of technology, I think that they are layers of networks, layers of being and doing, layers of history, context, layers of time, layers of movement, and layers of people. This is, um, oh, let's see if I can... Okay, this is a minute of tweets uh, around the world. Approximately 500 million tweets are sent every day uh, globally, and this is a snapshot of one minute of the platform. Um, you can see in this snapshot, uh, by the full extent, about 5,500 tweets. Uh, you can see regionally where tweets are lighting up. Um, you can see the movement across where you see the sort of words flashing across the continents is where tweets begin to network. Um, it's a pretty cool image. To me, I'm very interested in this idea of layers on layers and layers as a, as a starting place for what I'm trying to do in this research. That I, I don't really have a, a very, especially to those of you who are deep in the world of media studies and, and critical technology studies, I don't really have a clearly articulated theory of what these spaces are yet. But what I'm really dissatisfied with is the utilitarian language by which we talk about uh, social media contexts like uh, platforms or users or tools. I want to talk about a few specific projects um, from the Indigenous Twitter Collaboratory, which is one of my research labs that's moved from UVic now at OISE. Uh, we're involved in a, in, a, in a variety of projects that are in varying stages of partnership with Twitter, um, some very formal and in nature and some very informal and some very subversive. <laughs> Our most formal partnership is around suicide prevention policies and practices. At this point, Jeffrey starts to explain how suicide as an issue manifests within the Twitter ecosystem, or what he refers to as digital emergences of, of, of suicidality. So what that literally means is that people sometimes post their deaths on the internet um, in a very like videographic way that is documenting what's happening through Periscope and other live stream forms. Uh, but also, as an organization, they take on a, a type of liability. Um, and how they respond to these things in terms of public policy. Where do they refer people? So I've done some consulting work with Twitter in that regard. It's very interesting. It's a very surveillance-oriented approach, very um, focused on the reduction of risk in these spaces. Um, and so we're working very strategically and slowly to sort of shift that paradigm. And, and some of the other projects that we're doing are how we're doing that. 
So as many of you would probably know, social determinants is a framework that's come to permeate uh, much of mental health literature in Canada. We know that Indigenous peoples consistently um, are referred as being one of the most at-risk populations. And how, you, know, you look at all these outcomes in health studies. Um, and what's consistent across the majority or the bulk of Indigenous mental health literature is that colonialism is often referenced as the most substantial factor influencing the outcomes. Um, and so while uh, you know, recent reviews of this have examined scoping reviews recently as uh, 2017 found that 36% of articles uh, that focus on Indigenous mental health cite social dimensions of mental health and particularly colonialism as the key ideological factor. Um, and the authors frequently across these papers report that colonialism affected policy decisions related to child welfare, incarceration, um, residential schools, of course, um, and that 11% of these articles focused on interpersonal violence, intimate partner violence, racial discrimination, negative interactions with law enforcement, and sexual abuse. Um, and so while researchers have identified factors, uh, and particular social factors, that have come to influence the well-being of Indigenous people, they rarely become the focal point of psychosocial interventions. They sort of remain on the periphery. And so we constantly say, oh, these are social issues. Colonialism is a problem that's impacting Indigenous people's well-being. But we really don't see it shaping the way that people practice uh, in a variety of contexts, professional and otherwise. And while we can name these structures, like colonialism or poverty or racism, most applied practices of human service, be it social work, psychology, education, many others, don't actually have much of a rich qualitative understanding of how those structures actually play out. Um, and so we, we often have interventions designed to address these problems that haven't adequately understood what's being experienced. And so the status quo of our practices and theories remain largely unchanged, frequently depoliticized and irrelevant. So we were recently approved for a short grant that's going to go between 2018 and 2000 to 2022 that's going to build upon some of this research. Really the goal of this grant is to deepen a qualitative understanding of the social and political intersections of colonialism as expressed within indigenous social media networks. Uh, we chose to do this approach because uh, of, of a number of emerging studies which are talking about the ways in which indigenous youth in particular are documenting their experiences through social media contexts. Um, so an added component of that is that there's a, a substantial amount of risk involved in the research ethics process in asking people point blank questions about the types of socio-political systems they're encountering. So social media as an ecology, as a space, um, is a context that's rich with data, uh, rich with uh, material, uh, rich with experiences, lived experiences with these colonial structures and systems. So specifically, our methods are that we have access um, to the comprehensive hashtag archives for Idle No More and Reoccupy as our starting place. And through that content, uh, we will do qualitative study from a variety of things, from text-based qualitative study to visual, visual and audiovisual qualitative study using software like Invivo and others, um, and also a number of social media analytic tools, so things like sentiment analysis, content analysis, and network analysis. Here's the big thing, that content was purchased, a very political and capitalist moment. Um, and like all content on Twitter can be purchased, which is a reminder that all consuming of platforms, so to speak, is as much a 
uh, context for creativity as well as it is a context for um, capitalist exploitation. The second thing we're doing is we're scraping data from Twitter, um, recruiting access from specific users. So in the context of the university, we recruit um, indigenous and non-indigenous students to allow us to study their social media data. So f signing over the rights to your Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, and so on. This is an example of something, this one of the most widely shared images in the I Don't Know More hashtag archive. In 2015 um, and 16, the news around the contagion of suicides in Attawapiskat gained national prominence. Um, Eleven suicide attempts in a northern uh, community, First Nation Attawapiskat, had um, declared the state of emergency and um, really was orienting around the prevention of death of young people. The parliament held an emergency session, kind of propagated by Romeo Saganosh and um, Charlie Angus. When the government of Canada sent crisis workers up to the community, social workers and psychologists and educators mainly, this is a list of things that youth in the community um, thought that they felt would be helpful to addressing the issues in their community. Here Jeffrey shared a slide of the hashtag Idle no More image, a photo of a handwritten list that reads, What Ottawa Piscat Youth Need? YMCA Fitness Centre, Community Greenhouse Garden, Better Education, Drug Slash Alcohol Free, Youth and Parenting Centers, Traditional Teachings, Track and Field, Dry Land, Youth Campsite, Recycling Center, Skateboard Park, More Sports and Workshops, Dust Control, Clean Swimming Pool, Elder Camp. And so while social work, psychology, and education often cite things like racism, cultural dislocation, the legacy of residential schools, land theft, loss of language, overcrowding, poverty, unsafe housing, and stigma, what this I think in a very clear way and visual way is showing us is something that is really missed by the dominant approach to policy in relationship to an issue like suicide. Um, dust control, swimming pool, a track and field, dry land, a greenhouse garden. These are not the sorts of interventions that the imaginaries of my discipline create. Um, and so I think for us, you know, these ty this type of content is put pointing us in a different type of direction. So for, for, from my perspective, looking at the most, one of the most shared images around the world from this critical moment, um, is something that can help reinform our imagining around what practice might look like. Do we train psychologists, teachers, social workers, social service workers of any kind um, to imagine themselves implicated in dust control policy? No. The second area is our decolonial projects on, within, with, or whatever other metaphors we want to use with Twitter. Um, there's a lot of discourses. Uh, Shirk released a report in 2017, November, talking about the potential of disruptive technologies and ICTs for cultural revitalization. For anyone unfamiliar with the acronym, ICT stands for Information and Communication Technology. But this approach often depoliticizes the histories and radical present of indigenous people's utilization of technology creation with it and being with these uh, environments. Of course, conceptually for me, as a decolonial perspective, um, Yves Tuck and Kei Yang Wang focus on the materiality of decolonization as a process that's not actually abstracted and um, that's oriented around the refusal of metaphorical language, that we need to be committed to actual concrete ends. Of course, Marissa was cited earlier about ICT's holding promise, a precariousness, and the problems. 
uh, for indigenous people that are inherent in technology, but that unlike the way that has been suggested by some, I'll just say quite plainly, radical resurgence and resurgence scholars are devoid of decolonial potential, that we need to reject technology because of all the precarious risk inherent in it. Duarte's work, I think, really points us towards the idea that there can be decolonial and sovereign utilizations or beings with or within. Um, so for us, this question, we know in mental health literature that re revitalizations of culture can support indigenous mental health, but not through a neoliberal framing of indigenization or just cherry-picking culture. I said yesterday, sprinkling indigeneity on a cupcake. We're not just uh, an added thing, but that our relationship with these projects fundamentally is renegotiating uh, indigenous people's sovereignty with the settler state. So we wanted to kind of consider how that's happening and promoting wellness in a very political sense online. So uh, we have another shirt grant that's funding this research for the next two years, really to deepen our qualitative understanding of decolonial projects on Twitter and explicate the polity of cultural revitalization activities within and with Twitter, um, and to deepen our understandings of the materiality of decolonization within and with digital spaces by examining how indigenous people are repurposing the platform. We are basing this in two critical junctures at the moment, and we have uh, plans to expand to a few others. Uh, but I'll talk briefly about one, which is our, our study of language revitalization. There's a lot of talk about the use of platforms, social media platforms, for the purpose of language revitalization. Uh, I've got a few up here. I think this tweet on the far left side is really articulating how Canadian government uh, funding policies understand technology as a platform for cultural revitalization. The tweet Jeffrey just pointed to in his slide read, Today is hashtag International Francophone Day. Unlike other indigenous languages, Machif was formed by mixing French and Cree. Today, there are over a thousand Métis Machif speakers across Canada. Click here to learn more Machif today, followed by a link to a Machif workbook published by the government of Canada. Um, it's very much about here. If you do this, you can access our workbook and then learn the language. Um, I really like the quote by Dallas Hunter around Cree words of the day, um, vampire pointing to Justin Trudeau's recent policy maneuvers around the pipeline expansions. Another pointing to Nathan's tweet, Any, anyone in Winnipeg who can teach or help me learn Machif, I want to learn my language so bad. I think these create a really important contrast. We can see that the, the, the ecology is producing an opportunity where there is language learning, but not in the way that we have understood it not merely to indigenize, but also to speak politically about the nature of material context and to strategically politically engage systems of the settler state. Uh, we see the platform uh, bearing witness to yearnings for kinship and a deeper type of relationality that not only is rooted in uh, bordered senses or bordered um, sentiments of land, but transnational uh, boundaries across geographic space. I think this is a really interesting one from our archive um, showing um, Canada should act quickly to document, teach all Turtle Island languages. Human language is beautiful and part of culture. Canada should protect all peaceful cultures. In response to spending money on obscure dead languages keeps First Nations focused in the past and never moving forward, forever dependent children and apartheid. <laughs> I think this to me is how, in, this, this captures something really critical about language revitalization is not merely um, about learning how to be Cree. Language revitalization is a polity, that being Cree 
is in relationship to a political structure and system um, that must be resisted. And, and I would agree with the one part of the quote. Uh, we should maybe end apartheid, uh, but not for neoliberal democracy. So that's where I'll stop. I hope it's helpful. Thank you. Thank you to Jeffrey for that presentation. He touches on a lot of ideas in his talk, but I particularly like how he theorizes digital spaces like Twitter as layers on layers on layers of networks, being and doing, history, context, and time, movement, and people. I think the spatial configuration of technology, as he called it, is beautiful and also helpful in terms of recognizing digital contexts like social media as ecologies or environments rich with data that can be more meaningfully tapped into by researchers and policymakers. This sort of critical reflection on what digital spaces even are, I think goes hand in hand with producing the type of innovative social media research Jeffrey is working on. Jeffrey also draws our attention to the need to center political and decolonial activity rather than just cultural revitalization when we look at indigenous uses of and innovations with ICTs. And his presentation reminds us that emphasizing only culture depoliticizes the long history of indigenous engagement with these technologies. So Jeffrey and Ashley both come to their work from clearly articulated political and ethical positions, and they give us a lot to think about in terms of how we define and imagine the digital. But how does that relate to current issues in the DH community, the problems I mentioned at the top of this episode? And what can DH students and scholars take away from these presentations in relation to their own work? During the Q&A after David Gertner's keynote at the symposium, Jeffrey asked if he was calling for a political ethic or practice in DH. And David replied, yes a political and critical DH, not seeing cyberspace as a landless territory. That's a call I think we all need to get behind and start contending with in a real way. NISCA writer and SINM co-organizer Jordan Abel also had something to say on the topic. Here's a clip from his talk where he discusses his experiences working at the intersection of creative writing, the digital humanities, and Indigenous studies. So over the last couple of weeks, I've been struggling greatly with how to fit this paper into a digital humanities framework. And after struggling and struggling, I came to the realization that my work actually doesn't fit easily into a DH context. But it also doesn't fit easily into an Indigenous Studies context. And it also doesn't fit easily into a creative writing context. And it also doesn't fit easily into an Indigenous Literary Studies context. In fact, it, it just doesn't fit anywhere, but it does work between and across those disciplines. Uh, and I think at its core, DH needs to be both an interdisciplinary and an intersectional space that invites and encourages work that engenders understanding across forms of difference. And DH needs to be a space without gatekeepers and with generative porous borders. The question for me is no longer how my work fits into digital humanities spaces or English literature spaces or creative writing spaces, but which disciplines, which conferences, which associations, which institutions, which colleagues understand and value interdisciplinary work, and likewise, which ones are actively 
creating spaces for intersectional approaches. Responding to his keynote, conference participant Sarah Humphreys tweeted, What can I say about Jordan Abel's talk? An incredible argument as to why DH needs to do more work that is community-based, intersectional, and engenders connection across borders and each other. His talk is a call to action. Will DH respond? And that's where I'll close this episode, with a call to action from SINM 2018 to the DH community, and with a few questions of my own. How can those of us studying or working in the digital humanities respond to the calls to build a more critical and political DH? What does decolonization even look like in relation to ICTs and new media? And how might some of the ways that we typically relate to or define digital technology reproduce settler colonial ideas or norms? This episode was written and produced by me on Ambiguit, the ancestral territory of the Mi'kmaq people. Thank you to Ashley and Jeffrey for their presentations and to all the presenters featured in today's show. For anyone interested in Ashley's work, her digital story, complete with images, is available on YouTube under the title Homeland and Decolonialism, Philippine Tattooing Practices as Digital Technology. Recoding Relations is a collaborative series co-produced by Autumn Schnell, David Gertner, and me. Thank you to Madeline Taylor at CITR Radio for all her support and guidance with the planning, production, and editing of this series. The intro track for the Recoding Relations series is Snakes and Ladders by Cree cellist Chris Dirksen from her album The Cusp. Other music featured in this episode was by Ketza and Susie Ibarra and Asif Sahar. Big thanks to everyone who participated in the 2018 Symposium for Indigenous New Media, and particularly organizers David Gertner and Jordan Abel. Thank you to our partners, the Digital Humanities Summer Institute at the University of Victoria, the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, First Nations and Indigenous Studies at the University of British Columbia, First Nations Studies at Simon Fraser University, Indigitization, CITR Radio, and Unceded Airwaves. To learn more about the symposium, visit indigenousnewmedia.wordpress.com or search the Twitter hashtag SINM2018. I'm Melissa Haverl, and this was Episode 3 of Recoding Relations. (laughs) 